electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, a new, more contagious strain of the coronavirus emerges. The risks ahead with Dr. Scott Gottlieb. This probably will not slip past our vaccines very easily, but eventually we'll have to update the vaccines. And however long the pandemic lasts, students at Big Ten University Purdue are learning. President Mitch Daniels on what works for health and on campus. That was a huge undertaking to be able to set up a system where they could move seamlessly from uh, in-person or partially so to fully online and back again. Those stories, plus what the wealthy are planning for a prosperous new year and what Joe Kernan is planning for his own health care. We are not worthy. No, Joe, I just know how eager you are to get your shot. I mean, I don't know how old you are, but I assume you're not over 75. (laughs) It's Monday, December 21st, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan, and this is Christmas week, but look out below. We're wearing red this morning. A new strain of the COVID-19 virus has been identified in Britain, and doctors are warning it could be even more contagious than what's already out there. This new variant is thought to be up to 70% more transmissible than the original strain. But at this time, there's no evidence to suggest it causes a higher death rate. And England's chief medical officer said the working assumption is that the current vaccines from Pfizer and BioNTech, as well as Moderna, should still work against this new strain. But fear has spooked the global markets this Monday and spooked the British public. Travel restrictions and more severe lockdown measures arrive just a few days before Christmas. And other European countries, France, Germany, Italy, Ireland, and the Netherlands, have all barred flights from the United Kingdom, as have Canada, Israel, and India. The UK's health secretary suggested it could be months before strict coronavirus restrictions would be allowed to end. Here's Joe. Here with more on this, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former commissioner of the FDA, currently serves on the boards of Illumina and Pfizer. He's also a CNBC contributor. And his latest op-ed in the Wall Street Journal uh, focuses on on a discussion that that we had at length last week, uh, Scott, about some of the therapeutics and some of the bottlenecks or whatever's causing them not to be. I mean, logistically, it's difficult, home infusion necessary, but we'll we'll, we'll touch on your your op-ed, but let's talk about this, this new strain first. Uh, I looked into it a little bit more. 14 mutations, seven are in the spike protein, apparently. There have been thousands of mutations already uh, in this virus. So it's, it's more contagious. I think what scares people, Scott, or what causes concern is if, if it's, it's mutating fairly easily, is it possible there could be a mutation that could make it more lethal? This is not that. This is more contagious. But it makes you think is it, that if that were to happen, that would that would be very concerning. Right. And, and the other question is, is it possible that there could be a mutation that obviates prior immunity so people who got the Before infection the can get it again yeah. or slips past our vaccines? Right. This does appear to be, this is a mutation. 
The question is, was this uh, the result of selective pressure? So was this selected for because it's more contagious? Or was it what we call founder's effect? It just happened to get into London, in London into some early super spreading events, and it became the predominant strain, but it's not really um, selected for. We now think it's selected for. We now think that this is more transmissible. It doesn't seem to have mutated the surface proteins of the virus in a way that they would slip past our vaccines or prior immunity. In fact, we don't think that that's the case. But what this does suggest is that eventually this virus probably will evolve its surface proteins in a way that they won't be recognized by the antibodies we have right now. We will have to update the vaccines. Most viruses mutate, as you know. Um, some viruses, like flu, evolve their surface proteins very quickly, and that's why we need a different flu vaccine every season. Some viruses can't really change their surface proteins, like measles. This virus seems to fall someplace in between. It's not going to change its surface proteins very rapidly, that spike protein, but it will change it over time. And then the final point is that it's probably a good thing that we use the entire spike protein in our vaccines because what we're getting is what we call a polyclonal uh, response. We're developing antibodies to many different regions of that protein. So even if one part of that protein were mutated and some antibodies no longer recognized it, there would be antibodies to other parts of that protein. So this probably will not slip past our vaccines very easily, but eventually we will have to update the vaccines. The antigen tests are a different question, and the antibody drugs for that matter. If those tests are primed to a very specific region of that spike protein, and that region undergoes some change, it could potentially slip past those tests. So we're going to need a way to monitor for these strains and update some of our technology. Well, wow, hadn't even... Uh Hadn't even thought about that. Well, you remember the old days, Scott, there'd be a mutation and be like, whoa, there's a mutation. All you had was the so-called the phenotype. We can get the genotype immediately now. So we, within seconds, we, uh, literally, maybe hours, we can sequence the mutation. So we got that going for us, which, uh, which we never had before. Plus, we have this new platform, this new uh, messenger RNA platform where you could easily, if you had to, you could, you could introduce a new version right. of a vaccine if it, if it mutated around it, right? Aren't both of those things positive? Right. The advent of synthetic vaccines makes it very easy to update these vaccines, and we will be doing much better surveillance than we've done historically using um, sequencing. So um, yeah. we do that for flu. What, we what, sequence strains of flu. We're going to have to do that for COVID as well. Do you have a good feel for what the actual, where does the pathology reside in the virus? I mean, what, what, what part of the virus would have to mutate to make it more lethal? How, why is it um, deadly? What makes it deadly? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, I don't know the exact answer to that question. I mean, it would have to do with some of those surface proteins and how they elicit uh, a reaction in our body. So the spike protein probably would be one of the elements that would undergo, so that's potentially undergo some change to make the virus itself more virulent. All right. Back. Scott, how quickly do you think that you're going to need to update these vaccines? Is this something that later this year, next year, you think that we'll be getting multiple strains? I mean, when you, when you talk about the flu shot, I always ask for the, for the quad strain, the one that goes after four different strains. Are we talking about something like that in the near future? Yeah, I mean, we thought every two or maybe three years, I was saying that probably six, eight months ago, every three years, that might still be the case. I don't think this is going to be something we update, need to update it every season. But if it becomes easy to update it, you may do that. You may look at what the predominant strain is and try to update it more, more regularly. We're going to have to get into a mode, at least for the foreseeable future, where we could uh, approve updates to this vaccine based on immunogenicity, based on its ability to, to generate antibodies, like we do for flu. The reason why we're able to update the flu vaccine each year is because we don't do full-blown outcome studies every time we do an update to that vaccine. We understand how the vaccine works 
and we allow it to be updated and improved, new versions of it based on immunogenicity data alone or largely immunogenicity data, basically proving that the new version can generate sufficient antibody response. Eventually, we'll get into a framework like that with COVID. We will accept that if a vaccine can induce a certain level of antibodies, it's going to be effective, and therefore you'll allow updates based on antibody response. And, and that's how we're going to be able to keep up with this. The CDC panel has signed off and said that the next group of people who should get these vaccines would include anybody age 75 and up, along with frontline essential workers. We should be inoculating anybody age 65 and up or anybody with comorbidities first. That's about 100 million Americans. He said those are the ones who are most at risk of, of dying if they get COVID and are the ones who are most likely to wind up hospitalized. So if our concern is making sure that, hospitalized don't get, uh, that hospitals don't get overrun, those are the people we should be going after. Right. Look, I largely agree with that. I, I wrote about this in the Wall Street Journal about two or three weeks ago. I think that we should make, make this age-based and, and inoculate the elderly first and people who have significant comorbidities because they're the most likely to succumb to the infection. And we should use, use this tool now that it's a, a, a tool that is being rationed for the time being as a way to maximize the preservation of life. And the way to do that is to inoculate people who are at highest risk of dying. But I think that it's reasonable that the CDC allowed some room for governors to make some targeted decisions about vaccinating certain frontline workers. I've talked to some governors that are going to vaccinate inside their prisons or homeless shelters. Others are going to vaccinate um, transportation workers, people who drive buses, people like that. So I think that those are reasonable decisions when you have certain categories of frontline workers who've been um, disproportionately affected by the virus, who we need on the job, who've been out there um, putting themselves at risk. I think making one-off decisions in those cases is reasonable and in largely following an age-based scheme. Hopefully there'll be an inflection point, and I think there will be some point this spring where we're going to go from rationing this vaccine and not having enough for the, for the demand to having enough to satisfy the demand, and we'll be trying to find people who want to get vaccinated. Um, you know, I think for that to come to pass, we need one more entrant into the market. Hopefully J&J &J gets over the finish line. I think that they're the most likely. But if they're able to do that, and we have J&J &J enter the market at some point in late February, early March, I think we're suddenly going to have a lot of supply, and this won't be a tool that's rationed anymore. So, Scott, have you, do, are there guidelines for who should get the, the infusion of, of these drugs that you're worried about, aren't get, the therapeutics that aren't getting out quickly enough? And, and since the last time we spoke to you, do you think policymakers are, are sort of trying to get up to speed on how to make this happen? Well, I don't think it's a question of the, the guidelines, although there is some reluctance among clinicians who don't feel that the data is very robust. But the downside is very low. I mean, the, the safety profile of these drugs is pretty good. I think the issue is just economics and logistics. What we needed to do was overpay for the administration of these drugs because it was going to be expensive. There were a lot of startup costs in setting up special sites for the delivery of these drugs. And if, unless you're going to bake into the reimbursement some allowance for those costs, some compensation from those costs, it's going to be very difficult for hospitals that are pressed right now, very pressed, um, for resources to set up, to, to put in the money for the fixed cost of setting up special infusion sites for the administration of these drugs. And so I think the federal government has a role here trying to provide for um, the provisions that will allow the states to do that. They, some states are doing it. Maryland is doing that, for instance. Many states are not. I know that yeah. there are states that haven't administered any of these drugs yet. It's a catch-22. Like you don't you get it in the hospital, but you don't want to go to the hospital. So you've you got to do the home infusion thing uh, somehow. Well, the what, other piece what? of this is that there's a lot of heterogeneity as you move across the country for how people are getting access to these drugs. In some states you can get them, other states you can. I worry about the, the vaccines as well, that there's going to be a lot of differences between different states about how they administer the vaccines, who's eligible, where you have to go to get it. 
And there's going to be a certain sense of unfairness because people are going to be in one state and they'll, they'll be able to get the vaccine and then a comparable person in another state will not be eligible for it. So we need some uniformity to how we do these things so that we have equity across the country as well. All right. Thank you, doctor. We'll see you. Thanks Back. a lot. Okay. Moderna joining the fight against COVID. Its vaccine rollout is underway. Millions of doses are being shipped to cities and towns across the country. Meg Terrell joins us right now. She's got more on how that rollout's going. Meg, good morning. Good morning, Becky. It is the second week that coronavirus vaccines are making their way across the country. 5.9 million doses of Moderna's vaccine this week, joining 2 million more doses of Pfizer's vaccine. And that's on top of the 2 million, 2.9 million doses of Pfizer's vaccine that went out last week. So altogether, by the end of this week, we should be approaching 11 million doses in the U.S. distributed. Now, as of yesterday, the CDC has started reporting uh, the number of doses distributed and administered. And as of yesterday, at 1 p.m., 2.8 million doses had been distributed, 556,000 administered, and that is expected to climb, of course, as this moves into nursing homes and uh, the pace and the cadence of administering uh, really starts to get established. And the reason that 2.8 million might be uh, more um, than perhaps expected is uh, there are more doses per vial uh, than people expected at the beginning, more than five. So there's six and even seven sometimes. Um, also over the weekend, the CDC meeting uh, wants to vote to recommend Moderna's vaccine and then again on Sunday to talk about who should be in the next priority group after that very tippy top with healthcare workers and people who live in nursing homes. And what they ended up voting on was people who are 75 years or older and frontline essential workers. So uh, there's 30 million people in that frontline essential worker group, 19 million people who are over 75. Uh, and the way that they characterize frontline essential workers uh, includes first responders, people who work in education, like teachers, support staff, and daycare workers, people who work in food and agriculture, manufacturing, uh, corrections workers, postal service workers, public transit, and grocery store. Uh, and then essentially in the next tier will be those other essential workers you can see on the right, which includes media guys. Uh, we'll see how that goes, uh, as well as people who are at high risk of the disease and people who are age 65 to 74. Uh, now, this was, of course, an agonizing decision for this committee, uh, having to decide who might come next. But of course, the supply of these vaccines is going to be limited at the beginning. They're going as fast as they can, but they won't be able to get to everybody for a few months, guys. Hey, Meg, it's a really interesting question. Obviously, there are going to be some questions that are raised about this and people who are probably pushing back. Really, the first people that we should be looking at would be anybody age 65 and up, not 75 and up like that, anybody age 65 and up, because that's where 80 percent of the of the deaths from COVID are coming on this issue. And and then people with comorbidities, because that's another 15 percent or something of, of, of where these deaths are coming up. Those are the people that are clogging up the hospitals. That's that's why we are having such a problem with this right now. And if you could get at the fatalities, if you could bring that number down, that would be the success story. And I, th I think that's the type of questions you're going to see raised immediately now that the CDC is weighing in on this. Yeah, I mean, it's been a debate that's been raging, I think, all week leading up to this meeting. Um, and, you know, the CDC grappled with it. I mean, this, this committee, uh, the ACIP committee, um, what they did was they had they were trying to balance essentially the 
a reduction in morbidity and mortality, and that's where you get the age-related question and the underlying health conditions, uh, versus preserving society's ability to function, and that's where the frontline essential workers come in. So really trying to do some of both with these allocations, uh, with the 75-plus and the frontline essential workers, including teachers, trying to ensure that school can go on in person, um, things like that. I mean, these are the kinds of societal decisions this, this group is working on. And then, of course, it is up to each state what it wants to do. They can take the recommendations or they can go their own way. So we're, we're bound to see differences in all the states with this, too. I would get one tomorrow, tomorrow, Meg, obviously, if it were to come. But I I, I heard in your voice a little bit of a snicker when you said essential employees. You couldn't even sell that that when you said media for essential employees. I could hear it in your voice. You're like, who like who made that up? I mean, we are not worthy uh, compared to. At no, least. Joe, I just know how eager you are to get your shot, and I want to make am, sure you need your group I, 1C. I, I, I just, mean, I don't know how old you are, but I assume you're not over 75. Anyway, <laughs> my, my, point, my point was that's, that's a stretch, essential workers. That's a stretch, although I'm ready to take one. My other question, Meg, is so you get the shot, you get the jab. What do you really think it takes before you get a couple of antibodies going. You think, you think within a week you have some limited uh, immunity? I mean, 29, what, you get that second booster, obviously. But I just wonder, two days, three days, four days, a week, two weeks, do you have any ideas or any uh, evidence from the clinical trials at all for that? We don't know exactly how long it takes. I mean, we do know that, you know, in the Pfizer trial, they did start counting the cases officially one week after the second shot. Now, in terms of the first shot, we know that there is protection, but it takes some time to build up. Um, You know, between, for the Pfizer one, between the first and the second shot, the overall efficacy was 52%, but that, of course, included the first week where you probably aren't getting that much protection. So we don't know exactly how long it takes the protection to build up. We do know between shots one and two, you do get some protection, and then the greatest protection, of course, comes after two. Meg, I think it's pretty incredible the numbers you you point out about the 2.8 million doses being distributed, but you're still looking at five or 600,000 that have actually been, been given those shots. What's the holdup? Is that something that's going to be remedied pretty quickly to have, you know, like 20 percent of what's been handed out actually only actually being injected at this point. That seems a little weird. Yeah. So I've been talking with experts about this. I mean, one issue could be just sort of a lag in data reporting. Another is that, you know, they are expected to start going into nursing homes this week. So that's another group that got allocations and they are going to you know start getting those shots now. So that should catch up. Um, and, you know, I asked uh, General Gus Perna over the weekend when there was an Operation Warp Speed briefing, how many vaccinations can this country administer per week? Will we ever hit a limit? You know, we're sending out now 8 million vaccines almost this week. Can we administer 8 million in a week? And he didn't tell me how many the country can do at a time, but he said he didn't expect us to ever get to a point where the supply exceeded the ability to administer vaccines in the country. So we will see if that's the case. Probably over the next two or three weeks, we'll start to see how quickly these vaccinations can actually be done. But we're in the quote unquote easy part right now. I mean, it's going to healthcare workers. It's going to nursing homes. Uh, it's not in the community yet. That will be the challenge uh, in a few weeks to a few months. All right, Terrell. Bertha's already uh, tweeting. Gentle shade. I didn't feel very gentle. Next on Squawk Pod, how Purdue froze tuition, no increases for a decade. University president and former Indiana governor Mitch Daniels. Our philosophy isn't that we will restrain student costs at all costs to the institution, not at all. 
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm uh, Joe Kern along with Becky Quick. Andrew's off today. Virus concerns weighing, uh, outweighing any positives from the weekend agreement by Congress on a coronavirus aid package. Uh, travel stocks uh, getting particularly hard hit. As you can imagine, as uh, nobody's going to be headed over probably to, uh, to see Big Ben uh, anytime soon. Uh, <laughs> the only Big Ben you're going to see is that guy tonight who uh, I'm worried is going to, Roethlisberger, who I'm worried is going to do some serious damage. Oh. And, uh, yeah, exactly. I, I say Big Ben, and I do think about it. Took me a minute him, to follow you along. Yeah, I know. Like, what? Yeah. yeah. COVID is forcing colleges to rethink tuition costs. While some universities have increased their prices, others are cutting or freezing tuition. Purdue University, for instance, plans to keep its costs the same for 10 years straight. It's actually not a new thing for them. This has been happening since 2013 when Mitch Daniels came in and became president of Purdue. Joining us right now to talk about the cost of higher education and what the spring semester will look like is Purdue president Mitch Daniels. And and President Daniels, it's good to see you. You too, Becky. Let's first, before we talk about this tuition aspect of it, just talk about what so many parents and kids are, are, are wondering right now. What, what's the spring semester going to look like? I, I know that you had people there in, in person, students there in person going through this, but what's going to happen come January? I wish I knew for sure. We're apprehensive about January as we were about this past fall, maybe for slightly different reasons. One of our big concerns now is uh, not that we won't be able to manage the virus among our young people or even our staff, but that uh, many of our staff might be unavailable either through their own illness or quarantine because of someone um, uh, close to them. But uh, our full intention is to be back in class at an even higher rate. We had about two-thirds of our classes entirely or partially in person. We had uh, a reasonable amount of social interaction for our students. But uh, everything had to be conditioned by our determination to be safe and to uh, try to make certain that uh, our entire community, including our, our neighbors around us, were safe uh, as well. What was the biggest challenge you faced this fall? I think the daily challenge of tracking the data, trying to make certain that we uh, quickly removed a person who had tested positive. We were testing thousands of students a week and staff. Uh, try to make sure that we move them quickly um, away from other people, but also allow them to maintain their progress uh, academically. And um, that was a huge undertaking to be able to set up a system where they could move seamlessly from from uh, in-person or partially so to fully online and back again. 
Mitch, let's talk about this tuition freeze, because I, I think it's really a question that people are, are facing, especially as so many colleges are asking people, asking their students to, to learn online and remotely. It comes back to this issue of should tuition be rising constantly? I know it's something that you've been uh, concerned about for a long time. In fact, in 2013, when you came in, you did freeze tuition at Purdue. You've just announced that that tuition freeze will last all the way through 2023. So a decade of tuition freezes. Over that period of time, you really brought costs down, or at least brought it more in line with uh, with what costs should be. You went from being the most or the second most expensive tuition room and board in the Big Ten to being the most affordable because uh, I guess for the eight years or something before that, it had averaged about six percent a year for tuition gains. How how come you've been able to do this and stop tuition increases when when so few other colleges seem to be able to do that? What are you doing differently? I suppose it's just a matter of of what you prioritize, and we have said at Purdue, a land-grant school created really to uh, uh, broaden uh, availability of higher education, still the core of our mission, and we've simply said that uh, not at the expense of other goals, we've grown the faculty as fast as the student body, we've, uh, we're paying people competitively or more uh, than that, but that uh, we would uh, make this, uh, we hope, a common cause across our campus and on a campus where people, thank goodness, disagree about any uh, most subjects you could name. Uh, we all agree that we want uh, Purdue to provide a great value in education, a very high quality uh, marked by rigor and, um, and uh, uh, high discipline, but also at a price people can afford. And um, so, yes, cost control has been a big part of it. I have to say that as the years have gone by, we've been growing the student body, uh, and uh, as your business viewers uh, know full well, uh, a, a strong top line that makes everything else easier. What have you lost along the way? What have you felt like you've had to give in order to do that? Nothing of any significance. We will, we've continued to invest very heavily, both in, in people and in facilities. Our philosophy isn't that uh, we will... Um, restrain costs to student costs at, uh, at at all costs to the institution, not at all. Uh, but our viewpoint is if we can maintain high quality, as I said, we've grown the faculty as fast as the student body has grown, if we can pay people well, if we can make proper investments in, a, in the long term, if we can do all that and break even or better, which we have every year, then why would we raise costs just because we can? President Daniels, uh, thank you. It's great to hear. Wish other institutions would kind of pick up on that, too. But we appreciate your time today and hope to have you back soon. Coming up, health, wealth and happiness in the new year. How millionaires are hoping to secure their good fortune. The Republican millionaires rank taxes as the biggest threat to their wealth in 2021. Democratic millionaires say the virus is the top threat and how the rest of us can measure up. We're wealthy for different reasons, I think, aren't we? When you say wealthy, isn't it family and friends and, and, and happiness and all those things? Pets, animals. Squawk Pod will be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. Welcome back to Squawk Pod with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. Here's Joe. The wealthy are making some decisions about their money for the new year. And according to the results of a new survey, most expect to pay more in taxes. Robert Frank joins us now. So they, they're smart, these millionaires. They saw we had an election that, uh, that Joe Biden won. Is that what, is that what the, so they noticed? It doesn't seem like they, a they real, did notice, Joe. Remember, doesn't seem real profound. Doesn't seem real profound. That's that's what he said he's going to do. And he, you know, he's going to he's president elect. It is what it is. Yeah, and of course we have to. Yeah, we have to see what happens in Georgia, of course. But remember, this group owns 85 percent of the individually held stocks, so they matter for markets. And of course, as you say, they pay a lot of taxes. Two-thirds of millionaires expect to pay higher taxes under a Biden administration. That's according to the CNBC Millionaire Survey, where we survey investors with a million or more or in investable assets. Now, two-thirds also say Biden is likely to make good on that pledge to raise taxes on those making more than $400,000 a year. Half of millionaires say they already pay their fair share of taxes. 43% say they pay too much. 8% say they pay too little, but their views on taxes are more linked to political party than their wealth levels. Republican millionaires rank taxes as the biggest threat to their wealth in 2021. Democratic millionaires say the virus is the top threat. Now, some are also making some financial changes as a result of the election. 27% of multimillionaires are making changes to their estate plan. Very few, though, plan to sell stock because of a threat of capital gains taxes. And they are very bullish on the stock market for next year, most expecting at least a 5% increase in the S&P next year, a third expecting double-digit gains, and their favorite sectors where they're going to put most of their new money next year are healthcare and tech. Joe, back to you. Ugh, 70%. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Can 70% be right? 34 and 36 means uh, yeah. at least up 5%. 6, 36 plus 34, is that 70? Came up with that pretty quick, did I not? Did, so that, that's 70% bullishness. Yeah, no, overall, they're, they're not making many changes to their investments. Most, you know, that, that up 5% is two groups, up 5% and then a subgroup up more than 10%. And, and broadly speaking, they're not changing their fixed income. They're putting more money into the markets. And the one bearish thing is taxes. And again, we'll have to see what happens in Georgia, but this group is expecting taxes regardless of what we see. Right. No, I just mean, yeah, that's a, 
you know, it's a lot of people agreeing on, on something. Well, you know, we'll, we'll say yeah. nobody knows, uh, Robert, but that, that's a lot of, uh, usually it doesn't, doesn't help if everyone is. Even on DraftKings, whenever I do, whenever, you know, if it's a done deal, like tonight, Bengals Steelers, who in their right mind would pick the Bengals? No, it, it, I don't care how many people, they, I don't care how lopsided it is, they still, I'm not going to say it because maybe it'll happen. But it, it even happens with, in the betting markets. The consensus is never right, Robert. Anyway, thank you. And um, we're, we're wealthy for different reasons, I think, aren't we? When you say wealthy, isn't it family and friends and, and, and happiness and all those things? Pets, animals. So it's not, I don't, it should not be measured. Well, it should be a different word for what truly wealthy is because it's not about money. Becky, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. How do you like that mm -hmm. spirit, Beck? Pretty good, isn't it? I do. I do love it. It's strong and happy and healthy. That's what I pray for every night for my kids. That's the podcast for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to give us a rating, a review on your podcast platform of choice, or send us a tweet at Squawk CNBC to tell us what you think. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.